Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. The name of this podcast is changing to Product Mastery Now to better reflect our purpose of helping product managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products that customers love. The 2020 State of Agile report found that only 5% of organizations have yet to use agile practices in at least one team. Scrum is the most popular Agile methodology, and there's a good chance you're already using it and have been for a while. The move to remote work last year, though, it impacted how teams worked, including their use of Scrum. And to learn about these impacts and other tips for improving the use of Scrum, Howard Sublett, the CEO of the Scrum Alliance, joins us. The Scrum Alliance is a member-driven nonprofit trade association that supports the Agile movement. They have trained and certified over a million people and provide a vast community for Agile practitioners to interact. Now, before we talk with Howard, you'll also find a summary of everything we discuss, along with a one-page action guide at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 332. Check it out as we make it easy for you to get the most from this discussion. Here we go. Howard, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Well, thanks for having me today. I'm really, really glad to be here. I am excited to learn more about the Scrum Alliance. You are the chief product officer there, or chief product owner, I guess it is, right? One or the two. You probably get called lots of different titles. As long as somebody calls me, I'm glad. I don't really care. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Tell us what the Scrum Alliance is and more about that role you have. So the Scrum Alliance is a is a nonprofit or not profit, not for profit, but you would actually I like to think about it as a four impact organization. So we're really we have a mission to kind of empower our members to guide individuals and organizations into agile practices, principles, and values. And we we believe that by doing that, the world of work will be more joyful, prosperous, and sustainable. So we're we're a certifying body and a trade organization with about 1.38 million certifications around the globe at this point in time, with trainers on on in every country around the around the globe. So you you stuck in some interesting values there. Uh, I think you said prosperous, purposeful, and sustainable. Is that right? Prosperous, joyful, joyful. and sustainable. Okay, tell us how you think about this. You know, it's really, it's, 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 I'm glad you kind of asked that. My introduction into this industry was watching a very first scrum team work and listening to how that they talked about that the way that they used to work and how that they used to get work pushed to them for projects that they didn't understand a task to complete without context. And, and now as a team, they're working together and they get a problem to solve. And so they have some autonomy, mastery, and purpose using some Dan Pink language there to be able to solve that complex problem and, and delight a customer. So they were happier about the world of work that they were, they were doing because they were connected to, to the value being delivered. And to me, that's, that's really what a joyful workplace is. No one likes to go into work and spend eight hours doing something that somebody tells them to do that they have no idea how it affects or impacts somebody in the world. Scrum teams 
don't work that way. It's a, a very good distinction. And as product managers, we're doing really exciting work. We get to solve problems for customers and help our organization grow. And it should be joyful. And, and that's why when you shared those words about the values, how that relates. And sustainable is important to me, too, because I think if we're doing a good job creating value for customers, that creates value for our organization, which creates a healthy, growing organization and ultimately contributes to healthy economies, which is sustainable in the big picture of things. It does. It, it goes to that, and it also goes to just a sustainable pace of work for the people doing the work. So it, it needs to be financially viable, yes, but not at the expense of the, of the people providing the labor. Right. So the work itself has to be sustainable. Back to that joyful aspect as well. Mm-hmm. So the Scrum Alliance is not too far from me, it turns out. I actually didn't know it was in uh, Denver, Colorado. I'm just curious, how did it end up there? One of the two people that started the organization back 2001, 2002 is Mike Cohn. And Mike happens to live in Denver. And so when they were filing incorporation papers, I think it was out of convenience because that's where Mike lived. So our original charter documents were there. And then in 2006, when we became a nonprofit, the paperwork changed still in Denver. So it, it incorporated us in Colorado Law and in Denver. Excellent. So I was just looking it up here. Mike Cohn is back on episode 224, if anyone wants to check that out. So it's the everydayinnovator.com slash 224. You'll find that. Is Mike still involved? Mike is still one of our certified Scrum trainers. He's not involved as far as the organization goes, but he's one of the many uh, what we call guide levels in our community, whether they're certified trainers in our space or they're certified enterprise and certified team coaches. So Mike is one of our, one of our most well-renowned trainers out there. Listeners, you can check out that episode if you want to hear more from him, too. So back to Howard here. The, there, there's this uh, phrase for software product managers – that we use some of the time. I don't know where it originated. I think I maybe heard it first from Guy Kawasaki at Apple, but eat your own dog food, right? So mm. we should actually be using what we're making so we have better insights into how this actually serves people. How does the Alliance do that? I, I would rather drink our own champagne or drink our own beer <laughs> uh, rather than eating dog food, which sounds terrible. No one wants to eat their own dog food, but I do remember the phrase. Yeah, uh, we are we are actually organized as a as a staff as a team in cross departmental scrum teams. So in in most traditional scrum manners, you think about people in software teams working in groups of five or six or seven solving complex problems. We're a trade organization. We're not a software company, but we have a software element in the things that we do in our website and things that we provide for our members. So our teams are actually not all software developers. Our teams involve, I'll have one or two marketing people on the team. I'll have one or two people with an education background. I'll have people in customer support. I'll have software developers on there. You know, So we have completely cross-departmental, if you will, scrum team with a product owner and with a scrum master that's helping in a product space. So a suites of products that we offer. So I think it gives us, so before, historically, we were working as as a software team, and then we had a marketing team, and we had an education team, and we tried working in that way, but what we found out is that the education team would come up with some brilliant idea about how to reshape the education that we were doing and offering to the world, but they couldn't implement it without the software team. And the software team couldn't implement it without the marketing team because they had to put the words to it and make the changes for it. So there was these deep dependencies between teams. So let's remove the dependencies and let's actually try to work in truly cross-departmental teams 
so that we are together in that. So we do. I think we have seven or eight cross-departmental scrum teams working. And unusually, which many scrum teams don't do this, and we do, they work in two weeks cadences. And every two weeks, they review, they do their sprint review to real customers. Every team has a customer advisory team. And the customer advisory team sees increments of the products that they're developing, provides feedback, and they help inform the next sprint's worth of work. Mm-hmm. So we are drinking our own champagne. That's excellent. And I I <laughs> also don't like champagne much, but I'm sure I like it a whole lot more than dog food. So that's a better I, twist. I'm with you. <laughs> Something about the bubbles. I don't know. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. So you are putting it into practice. You work that way around our two-week sprint cycle. And I like that you have the addition of doing demos to customers that they are in, in the loop. Early in my software days, we were doing the extreme programming kind of approach. And, and for one project, I had a customer in our space every day for 30 days as we were doing reviews. And we went to a, this was long before Scrum, dating myself here, we went to what we call two-week epicycles, which sure look a lot like sprints. And every Friday, we would have, every other Friday, we would have pizza, and the demo, the team would demo what they got done that week, and we would try to have customers there as part of that as well. And it it just, it, it made the customer aspect, the focus as product managers should have on customers, real to the development team since they had interaction with the actual customer. It's huge. And it comes back to that joyful kind of thing that you're working and identifying the things that you're doing to the humans that are actually going to use the products that you're making. So many companies, especially large companies, miss that. Teams are are demoing products and, and delivering things every sprint and they never talk to a customer. It's only some salesperson out there or it's some exec and they're three or four orders of magnitude separated from real users of the product. But like back when we were co-located together, we would have customers come in and set and we'd watch them use our website and watch them interface and watch them go through their profiles. And, you know, actually real customer interaction is is truly valuable for great product innovation and product delivery. Yeah, it's very important for us. I, I encourage product managers, if, if you can get a lead developer out, an influential lead developer out on customer visit, that's really powerful. And if you can get customers to come in and work with you and developers, that's really powerful too. Yeah, very much. Our work has changed. Our work environment for many of us has changed this past year uh, with this thing called COVID that we're all tired of now. So we've gotten used to working remotely. And I've talked to some organizations that they're going to maintain, that they expect to maintain some aspect of this remote work. 
some organizations have done performance studies and they haven't found performance has changed and they're decreasing travel costs and other costs associated. And some organizations are having teams work one week a month. Uh, some are coming back a little bit more. Some are coming back less. We'll see where that ends up. Talk about how Scrum, maybe what you've seen in terms of it being applied in this re- remote environment. Uh, certainly, there's, there's been virtual teams for, for a long, long time using Scrum, but th- this is different now. So, so what, what have you seen come about because of this remote work environment? I think it's let organizational leaders kind of face their fears. They've been afraid that it wouldn't work or afraid that remote work wouldn't work. And they've found out that it does. Scrum teams are natively like truly working in a scrum team. You're not doing individual work. You're not doing siloed work. You're actually doing work together. So one of the things in, in, in this remote nature is it's, it's, it's inherently lonely. Like you, you don't get to see people. You don't get to work. It's hard. And if you're doing individual task work, it can just be really lonely but when a team pulls a story or pulls a, a product backlog item into the sprint and they're going to work on it, they, as a team or as a pair or as three of them, work on it together, which the, the kind of the requirement for the collaboration and the cross, the, the skill sets that it's going to need to move that story to done helps them work collaboratively together. So many of our teams that are working now are they have little open Zoom calls or other things that are going on where they pop in and out and they see each other on video most of the afternoon while they're pairing on complex problems to solve them. And I think that the nature of that kind of work makes the the distance base work a little easier on people because the nature of the work kind of needs collaboration and needs that interaction. Technology you know, when the Agile Manifesto was written 20 years ago, that I don't think anybody ever imagined that we could really work in a high bandwidth because we were all on, what, old Commodore 64 machines with dial-up internet. And now we're on high-fidelity HD cameras, and we're able to actually see each other and see if you're upset or not. Like, we can read emotions, and we can kind of get connect in a better way. I think technology has moved so far ahead that it's made it not just possible, but very plausible. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see some more tools uh, open up there. You know, like you shared open Zoom calls where it's kind of just like open virtual conference room to come and, and talk and hang out. So Clubhouse is interesting for the social media. I kind of want to see these fused together for a business environment and somehow help us and not distract us, right? Well, follow back up with me. I'm, I've got somebody that's built us a tool, which is actually... A, a mirror image replica of our physical building. It's a 3D rendering of our of our building, of our offices, and every one of my staff's chairs are there. And what was on their desk is there. Mm-hmm. And in a remote way, we can click in and we can sit and move from chair to chair. And when you're in the chairs in the nat- natural areas that you could talk to each other, you can just talk to each other. You don't have to have a calendar invite. It's just these are discussion kind of pits or areas where you can talk to each other. And if if I pop over into a room where you're in, Chad, I could talk to you. And so it gives you that uh, feeling of being in a space without being in the space. And you can kind of see people in other rooms flashing and talking because they're collaborating. You can see you can't hear them, but you know that five or six people are in a meeting over there, a little bit like what you would be in a regular office. So we're about to get, we're about to start using that ourselves and start uh, demoing it and showing it. So I'm kind of excited for how that that helps, like makes us a little bit more joyful and connects us as humans, at least one, one increment more. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. The, the, there was some research done, and the one that comes to mind is at 3M, and they were looking at the threads of, of innovation. How, how do new ideas get started at 3M, right? And so 3M has a reputation for being very good at bringing new-to-the-world sort of products and, and as deep innovators. Lots of good things have happened there. And, and they tracked down a lot of the innovation starts to one person, and I forget his name, and it was when you had lunch with him, you got ideas, Right, and it was over lunch that the ideas were born and shared through other organizations, and, and I don't know the details of this, right, to say that he was just the giver of ideas, but it was more collaboration that took place over lunchtime was where a mm-hmm. lot of ideas started, and collaborating in, in different disciplines, uh, different backgrounds and experiences, and, and somehow we need to keep that going in a remote environment. Yeah, you just reminded me they're in, they're in the physical building, which I haven't replicated yet. In a, in a digital way, but we had a, a big chalkboard wall of, of red hot new ideas and team members would write something and somebody else would add to it and they would cross and they would plus something and they would collect, they would actually collect really interesting product innovations or customer service innovations or ways that we can delight our people even better. And it was, it was, you know, like you say, it was a hallway conversation that would spawn those over coffee mm-hmm. with somebody. So I need to find a way, you know, Miro boards and other things are right. fine, but. They also feel, for me, Miro boards feel very fixed and um, static, like it's too well done. Like chalk on a chalkboard feels very haphazard and fun and a little less mm-hmm. formulaic. So it feels more organic in a way. So yeah. I, I would love to find a way to help help keep that moving. So you just reminded me. Thanks for that. Well, well, yeah, thanks for the tip, too. We need some kind of a virtual whiteboard you know, that we can interact with. And like you said, it doesn't look done. looks like it's it's messy and it's supposed to be, so we can mess with yep. it more. So if we have time, I'll get, I'll get back to kind of where might we start with Scrum, but I'm curious about a key problem that I've seen with organizations that adopt Scrum, and I suspect this is only exasperated by the remote work environment. And that's when, you know, usually a, a team picks this up, right? So, and this has been going on for a long time, and team, someone on a team will get excited, we're going to try this, you know, and they put everything in place, they get a Scrum master trained, they, someone becomes a product owner, and the team runs off with it, and they might see you know, lower performance initially, just like we would with any adoption of a process, and then they start to get rolling, and, and this is working well for them. But we still have this larger organization, which is probably used to a different form of cadence, right? And maybe a different form of roadmaps that get published and they're expecting, you know, each month, each quarter, some kind of time frame things to happen. And the organization can feel, organizational leaders can feel kind of in the dark, right? Disjointed and not like this, what Scrum is doing to the organization. Take us through some of those growing pains with Scrum, how that impacts the organization, what you've seen practically, how to help with this, anything you can shed light on. I think the word, one of the key words you said in that question or the statement was the word feel, that leaders feel. Because it's, it's, you know, in a traditional way of working, it's almost like comfort theater for them. In a traditional environment, they feel like they know exactly when a project's going to be done because that that giant Gantt chart said it. And they feel like that they know exactly what's going to happen at the end of a six-month plan. But the reality is it never happened that way. What they get at the end of it wasn't exactly what that they wanted, and, and it didn't show up on time. Or if it showed up on time, it was so buggy, it was miserable. But they they felt more comfortable. And so I think leaders have to unlearn some of that that they have and understand that what they don't know, that they need to acknowledge what they don't know. And they need to start realizing that 
distributing some of those decision-making down into the organization to the people that are closest to the customer may feel uncomfortable, but you were uncomfortable before you just pretended like you weren't right. You, 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 it made, it made you feel good to be able to, to show a chart that said it's going to be done on October 3rd when it just wasn't. So I've seen organizations build things like an agile enablement team that would be leaders of different areas of large organizations, somebody from senior leadership, somebody from the HR area, somebody that's head of a technology thing to where they can start. It's, it's almost more like a information center of kind of what's happening, how teams are progressing, uh, what things are being worked on. They become an information radiator to try to help coordinate across organizations. People have adopted all kind of interesting tools to try to help with that information flow. But mostly leaders for me have got to got to learn to unlearn those kind of things that 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 connection that they have to that false reality that they have that they know all the information. You know, like some of the some of the smartest leaders today are the ones that are clearly saying, I have, I don't know all the answers, right? I don't actually know when this, but I've got to trust the process in order to get there. And the thing about these kind of working in a truly agile way is your bets are short. You know, when you, when you're planning a one year rollout of a product, that bet's big. That's however much staff you have, your, whatever your load is, that's, that's risks, that's everything else. If I've got people working in two-week sprints or one-week sprints, I'm only really betting a couple of weeks, and I'm going to see a piece of working software. I'm going to see something working, some increment of a product, and I can make a new bet the next week or the next two-week cycle. So the the like the, the pace of change is faster than it's ever been, and if you work in these shorter iterations of scrum teams working in short iterations, the cost of innovation, the cost of betting, the cost of trying different things is the cheapest that it's ever been because we've learned to collaborate and work in these cross-functional teams and deliver an increment and show you a piece of something and let a customer see it and make a business decision. Do we go a little left? Do we go a little right? Right. Like the the bets are so much lower that 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 fear should reduce down. But if they're still trying to plan a year out on it while also having make increments on things, there's a tension there that they have to resolve. Budgeting cycles need to change. Leadership cycles over expectations of how to see products has to change. An important element there that I took away was we had uncertainty using what we have been using. Right, and, and we're actually maybe a dealing with the uncertainty a little bit better with Scrum. And so maybe the conversation is when, when we face resistance with this moving through an organization is, well, you know, is what we're, we're using now really working well for us, right? We, if we've tried this and we don't like it, we can always go back to what's not working now, right? And you're absolutely right. The, if we just would, would keep metrics on our projects, and hopefully a lot of organizations do this from a project management perspective, and they're trying to mature their practices, you know, are we finishing when we thought we would, right? Are we on budget where we thought? Or are we getting the scope done? The reality for a lot of industries is we're, we're missing all, all of those, right? Right. And Scrum does give us a way, even though it maybe feels less certain as we go, we know we're focusing on things that really matter as we go. Yeah, if you think about a traditional way to build something, companies used to invest, you know, six months to a year in a in an architectural uh, software architecture uh, design of a product. And at the end of that, you had nothing. You've spent a lot of money. You've got a lot of design. Or then you spend like 
those those old phases of working and development and architecture and and develop and then then testing and then UI UX like you're a year down the road or however long before you finally have a customer touch it and the things have changed in the world like there were products out there that were being built that then the iPad shows up in the middle of it and what they're building is no longer relevant like shortening those cycles and running in a cadence for the team, like for us as an organization, we're not a big organization. We're have 58 people, but every two weeks we're demoing to customers every two weeks. And every two weeks as a product owner, I've got the ability to say, this is cool. Now we need to shift this way. This is cool. Now I got a general direction of where we need to go. I understand where we need to go, but every two weeks I can see that customer feedback and I can make little increments of product delivery decisions and reduce the risk. I can increase the feedback mechanisms and deliver a better product to a customer. It's a different way of thinking about it. And there is tension there. And we have to recognize we need to have discussions about that and how this is going to be different and how what we're doing now may not be serving us well either. So, right. Okay, that's really good. You mentioned the product owner, and I don't know if you've come across this in the work you guys do or not, just how how the roles and how groups being – how their organization is changing some. So from a product management perspective, historically, the through my eyes at least, the product manager needs to have the external focus, right? Needs to have that relationship with the customer, understand what their problems are deeply, and kind of be the, the customer advocate for wanting to solve their problems and meet their unmet needs. And I, I've seen as Scrum came in – more of a focus put on product owners. In some organizations, we saw product managers become product owners, and that external focus kind of disappear. Like, for some reason, we don't need it anymore, which I'd never quite understand. And now I'm seeing product owners evolve in different ways. And this is all very organizationally dependent, right? But some product owners are becoming much more technical and maybe even kind of having an architect role and maybe came from the development side um, and a lead developer that kind of stepped in that role. I don't know if you're seeing any of this from you know your role in the alliance there. Some of what you're talking about are people reshaping the role to fit their organization uh, rather than what uh, Scrum as a framework would actually advise you to do. So I've seen, I've seen in a past client of mine, they had product owners that were external focusing, and they had technical product owners, so they had them paired. They had an external facing, had a technical. And the technical, you're right, that was a, a senior developer that had moved up into that role. But the the reason that they had moved to that, because their their technology was so fragile and they didn't have a good grasp on, on technical debt, on the things that they were doing, they weren't using XP or any kind of great TDD, BDD, or any way that they were developing software. So basically, they put a leadership or a management type role in there to try to help overcome that. So a lot of those things really are done to try to make your current organizational design, make Scrum fit your organizational design rather than moving the organization to fit what what a Scrum framework would would be. The the PO role should be an external-facing role. I mean, you are the voice of the customer. My role in the organization, I spend most of my time with our stakeholders, with the board of directors, with customers out in the world, trying to understand how that they interact with us, what we're learning. But also, I have a dependency on our teams as well, right? So I have to understand what's happening. But the PO role should be an external-facing role. Organizations will have that as one person, right? And whether we call it the product manager, product owner, um, sure, we could cut through that later. But with someone that is 
understanding the customer's problem deeply, and also guiding the team in terms of what are the what features are we going to build in the product? What are those priorities if we're using uh, user stories or something else? And as you also kind of indicated in there, sometimes that's a split into two people, more of an internal facing. I'll own the user stories and help the team know what to build. And hopefully I'm connected at the hip with the external person to have that have that site in sight. And it seems like when it's split, it's really just a, it's a labor issue, right? It's, it's hard to find one person that can do both well. And I have seen some moves recently, read some articles about organizations that have moved to more of a, a product owner team. When you have uh, a lot of responsibility and a lot of uh, very complex product with wide user groups, it's really hard for one person to keep all of that in their head. So they end up with other people to help support that PO and how to understand the user, data analyst people, BAs, other things, marketing kind of people to help. So they surround that PO with, with the right kind of people to help them understand that. Yeah, I like that. A model that I have found that works at least well for my settings has been the external facing product owner, which I would actually call a product manager. And that is also doing the internal, you know, the, the backlog requirements work with a project manager. So you have a project mm-hmm. manager that's kind of helping with making sure things are staying together because it becomes overwhelming at some point. Okay, really helpful. We, we should have said in the beginning that because we've been talking about this in a software context, Scrum by no means is just for software projects, right? People are using Not it for hardware projects, which is interesting to think about in hardware projects. It's actually pretty pretty used widely now in hardware projects. So it's across industries, right? Not just cross, it's it's into areas that maybe you're not even aware or your listeners aren't aware. So we've been we've been funding a lot of research for agile in education as an example. So we have we have schools that we have been helping to provide education for and helping to provide some funding for that all the teachers have gone through training and all the students have. So now you have groups of, of fifth graders that are in scrum teams that pull the work to themselves as a team. And as a team, they make a commitment to their teacher that says, by the end of the week, teacher, we can learn our times tables by fives, and we can do the history of this blah, 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 whatever that is. And then at the end of the week, they review with the teacher, and they have to score proficient on that. And what we're learning is that if kids are empowered to pull the work towards them, the teacher's still saying, here's all the things we need to learn. But if kids are empowered as a team to pull it to themselves, it, it, it they pull much faster and they can learn faster. And this pod of kids may be learning something different than this pod of kids. And they're learning things in half the time than it would have taken in a traditional way. The other thing too is since they have to learn together as a team, they're responsible for each other's learning. So if one of the students isn't doing well, the rest of the team is helping them instead of just leaving them alone because that either the team tests proficient in those things on Friday and the team gets to move on or they don't. So they're, they're dependent upon each other. So it helps them in communication and collaboration. And I mean, good God, Chad, you know, this it seems like the kids today know how to text and don't know how to talk. Like we're, we're helping with, with these kind of things to, to do that. So it's 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 permeated a lot of things in a lot of ways that even people in their home they're using scrum or agile practices in their in their homes to manage to help provide visibility and transparency into are the kids getting the homework done have they done their chores have they practiced violin have they accomplished how do we know that it's done and so they set up little information radiators to to kind of manage a home it's an amazing thing how this movement in 20 years 
which start, like you said, in the software industry to solve a software problem, has found a foothold in many other parts of our lives. It's basically, a, a, from my perspective, a project management way of thinking. Sure. And our life is projects. Almost everything we do can be thought of as, as a project. We're trying to accomplish something in some amount of time. So, okay, really appreciate the information, Howard, and insights into what's going on at the Scrum Alliance as well, an organization that I had heard of but have never talked with anyone there. How can people find out more about the resources you have available? Easiest would be the, the website, scrumalliance.org. There are lots and lots and lots of articles on there. Easy way to find. There's some, you can learn about Scrum for free on the website. You can take a Scrum Foundations course on there for free. There's lots of e-learnings and they're on there, but it's a lot about the history and you can click through the team and learn about the staff there in, in Westminster, Colorado as well. And as listeners know, we love a good innovation quote around here. What do you have for us and tell us what that quote means? So I tend to go back to some of the great uh, philosophers of the world when I start thinking about innovation. And I think the philosopher for me, the quote that would, it would be for me is, everyone has a great plan until you get punched into the mouth, which is Mike Tyson. You know, people can plan, people can, can think about what they want to do, but it's not if you get punched in the mouth as a business, if your plans don't, it's when it's going to happen. So to me, it's about how you build your systems, how you build your organization to be able to respond to that particular punch in the mouth, you know, because it's going to happen. COVID was one of those things for companies all over the world. And you saw it, you saw it, you saw it. Some companies within a blink changed. They changed their business model. They changed the way that they work. And they really didn't miss a cadence because many of them were working in more adaptive short cycles. They were built for innovation. They were built for to inspect and adapt when things come, and others just didn't know what to do because they were waiting for a leader somewhere else to tell them what to do, and then some senior vice president to pass that down to a junior vice president to pass that down to, and it just took forever. You know, the Agile Manifesto, there's a line in there about responding to change over following a plan, and I think that's what true innovation is about, is don't get so caught up into the plan that you have, being willing to respond to change and, and, and do something different when you learn that. Yeah, I, I had not thought about that great philosopher before, but I, I do appreciate the quote. So that's excellent. Be willing to change the plan. Howard, thank you so yep. much. Appreciate your time. Anytime, anytime, Chad. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes and the one-page action guide of all the details with Howard at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 332. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.